today is the 5th of December, the 59th day of the war, and I'm joined from the United States by Dr. Dominic Green, who's a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, a columnist for the Washington Examiner, and a senior fellow in the Center for America and the West at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And he's also been found in the JC from time to time. Dominic, welcome. Hello, Jake. Thank you. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. As I said, we're 59 days into the war, which seems like perhaps the end of the beginning. Um, just paint a picture for us as to what this has been like stateside uh, in terms of the implications on Biden. He's got this election coming up. I mean, this really has thrown all the pieces in the air, hasn't it, for him, for, for, his, for, his, uh, for his plan for re-election? It has. I mean, historically, it's always been a commonplace of American politics that Israel is not a foreign policy issue. It's a domestic issue. Uh, and that is before the particular nature of this horrific attack coming, as it does, in the context of, of the uh, unraveling of the Biden administration's uh, commitment to reviving uh, the Iran deal. Uh, and also coming uh, at a moment of intense domestic dissatisfaction, where uh, more than 70% of Americans feel the country is going in the wrong direction, around the same number, including majority of Democrats, don't want Biden to run again. And in the polls, he's behind even a damaged, uh, in some ways discredited opponent, such as Donald Trump. So this has really come at the worst possible uh, moment for Biden and the Democrats. Uh, and it, in many ways, is a problem of their own making. This is the failed foreign policy coming home to roost. Yeah, I mean, in terms of foreign policy, I mean, going into October, the beginning of October, it seems to me from the outside that the Americans really had two main objectives before the uh, election. One was to expand the Abraham Accords to include Saudi Arabia, which which uh, Biden was pushing for uh, quite hard. And the other was to somehow get the Iranians into some kind of nuclear deal. And um, we've had Rich Goldberg on this on this podcast a few weeks ago. We talked about Iran and how America was basically trying to roll out a deal whereby a lot of money was released from various escrow accounts. Uh, around the sanctions, circumventing the sanctions, you know, tens of billions of dollars from South Korea, from Iraq and elsewhere, as a policy that the Americans thought of as de-escalation, but many of us saw as appeasement, leading towards getting the Iranians back to the table. And October the 7th just blew both of those apart, didn't it? It has. And we have to go back uh, more than a decade, really, to the very uh, longstanding effort by the Obama administration, really from 2009-10 onwards, to uh, arrive at a situation which both allowed the United States to disentangle itself from military commitments in the Middle East, while maintaining a decisive influence over the balance of power there. The two things are at odds with each other when you think about it, especially in a very unstable reason, region. And the, the method that was chosen was, of course, the most destabilizing of all, which was to empower a nuclear Iran as America's regional proxy. That meant downgrading uh, relations with its traditional client states, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Wait, wait, so just, just to stop you here, uh, there, Dominic, yes. so you're saying that Biden wanted to, and the Obama, a, a Biden uh, school of thought, wanted to have the Iranians as a proxy for the states? Yes. 
Yes, as the regional policeman. And in order to do that, it involves creating a uh, a balance of nuclear power, in effect, between Israel and Iran, and a balance of, of hostility across the Persian Gulf between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, this was um, a grand and reckless thing to do, and it very quickly unraveled. But the idea of, of using Iran as the regional policeman, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means making sure that Iran is more powerful than any other combination uh, of of uh, enemies, in effect. And it meant turning Israel and Saudi Arabia into those enemies, the opponents of, of a rebalanced Middle East that would work in the United States' favor. And as we know, um, crucial things were left out of the Iran deal, such as uh, ballistic missile development, which, of course, we've seen plenty of Iranian ballistic missiles in action in the last few weeks. The Iranians cheated on their uh, uranium enrichment commitments. And... Um, they effectively uh, used the deal, which was never ratified by uh, the Senate, because if it had been a real treaty, a, su a substantial treaty, by law, it would have had to have gone to the Senate. And the Obama administration knew they could never get it through the Senate. So the whole thing was done on a wink and a handshake. Um, and the Trump administration correctly surmised that the United States was being played, left the deal and opted for what they called maximum deterrence. Uh, when the when the Biden administration came in in early 21, it's the same Obama team, and they tried to revive the same policy. And that meant downgrading the Trump administration's alternative, which was maximum deterrence towards Iran, you know, aircraft carriers in the Gulf and so on, and building up the Abraham Accords to create an alliance uh, to counter Iran uh, between Israel and the Sunni Arab states, especially in the Gulf. Now, Biden's national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, refused to say the words Abraham Accords uh, when they came in. And they did nothing to try and develop this very promising, this breakthrough track that really had reshaped things. Ironically enough, had reshaped things in the way that the previous administration had hoped to reshape the Middle East in the American interest. Uh, instead, they went back to the Iran track, uh, released billions of dollars while claiming that it was, you know, earmarked and non-fungible, which, of course, everybody knows isn't true, and even paid um, just before October the 7th, $6 billion to free American hostages held in Iran. Now, to their credit, the Biden administration realized in uh, the middle of 2023 that the attempt uh, to revive the Iran track had failed and that really no amount of inducement and bribery seemed to be working. And they were starting to also think of the 2024 elections and therefore they declared a sudden interest in reactivating the Abraham Accords track and said that they wanted to have a peace deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which, of course, is more complicated than any deal that has ever been attempted in the region, a peace deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia by the end of 2023 or early 2024. And as we know, every time there is the promise of a breakthrough diplomatically in the Middle East, every time there's a prospect of peace, the opponents of it will exercise the terrorists' veto. And that, of course, is what happened on October the 7th. Now, sooner or later, Iran would have pushed its proxies to use that veto one way or another. But I don't think that it should be doubted that the sudden urgency which the Biden administration brought to this extremely delicate situation and a situation which the administration's own policies had contributed to raising the temperature, I don't doubt that this um, made it worse. It forced a crisis, in other words. Right. And it's funny. I mean, I, I said earlier in the last question that uh, October the 7th blew both the Abraham Accords ambitions of the Saudis 
and the hopes of an Iranian uh, a deal out of the water. But actually, I'm not, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. Certainly on the Saudi side, we have heard, although in the aftermath of October the 7th, there was a lot of ramped up rhetoric. There's a sense that it might not totally be off the cards in the next couple of years, maybe. Uh, and on the Iranian side, we've seen the Americans initially putting on pause the release of that money before they why they waited to establish whether the Iranians were behind October the 7th or not. But having established that they weren't, they're now releasing the money again. That $6 billion from South Korea has been released, so far as I understand it, as has the $10 billion from Iraq. And so it does seem as if the Biden administration is beginning to persevere with the rapprochement or the appeasement or the de-escalation with Iran in a way that it previously was. It's, it's picking up it's picking up that thread, even as October the 7th and the consequences rage all around us. I, I think so. And there, there, you could find two or three reasons for this. One of this is uh, simple uh, professional vanity, uh, an entire uh, generation, in effect, of State Department officials have wagered their career on the success of the Democrats' Iran play. Uh, there is also the simple question of of habit of of, of uh, the familiar being uh, preferable to the unfamiliar, especially if it involves ballistic missiles and a uh, Middle Eastern war, which will send the price of oil through the roof. And that brings us to the third uh, factor, which is very big, I think, in American policy calculations at the moment, and that is the domestic political factor. Going into twenty twenty four with uh, gas prices rising at the pump, with a Jimmy Carter-style hostage crisis, with American uh, installations in Syria and Iraq being uh, routinely attacked by Iranian militias, with the Houthis, who the Biden administration, by the way, took off the foreign terror terrorism organization list as soon as they came in, uh, the US Navy having to intercept Houthi missiles. This is, um, as they say here, very bad optics. And the effort to manage those optics is well underway and, of course, is doomed because you can't put lipstick on a pig. Uh, only yesterday we had this astonishing spectacle of uh, spokesmen claiming that the Houthis had not fired on a uh, U.S. Navy vessel in the Red Sea because it, it hadn't actually you know, come close enough to the ship to qualify as a direct attack. Um, this is nuts, obviously. And, and what we're heading towards, it seems to me, and I, and I wrote about this um, for the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, is a situation where the continual niggling of uh, American interests and installations across the Middle East, eventually um, the, the enemies of America are going to hit the jackpot. They're going to either damage an American vessel, they're going to kill American servicemen and women in their base in Iraq or Syria. Something like this is going to happen, and then you will have, as often hasn't, typically occurs in the Middle East, one of those situations which go from naught to 60 overnight, and a, a sudden and intense burst of violence. And at that point, the Biden administration will face the Jimmy Carter dilemma, which is, do you step up, defend your strategic interests, risk the price of oil going through the roof and a regional war and all the chaos that attends it, or do you back out and try and tell the public that there's nothing wrong and therefore try and win the election? Uh, and the Iranians uh, are keen students of history, and of course they are perfectly aware of how that played out for Jimmy Carter. And they have got Biden on the fork now of a of a dilemma, which, and it, and as I said, the U.S. Uh, has its own fault in this because it has 
pursued neither track, the Iranian or the Israeli-Saudi one, with sufficient seriousness, on the horns of a dilemma in which he's now got no good move. And in fact, the the, uh, the thing that's been worrying me recently is that before October the 7th, as of October the 6th, a lot of attention was on the Iranian nuclear program. And the headlines then were that it was about two weeks off having enough fissile material for a bomb. Since October the 7th, it seems to me, there's been a big distraction. But I would be surprised if the Iranians have been as distracted as, as the rest of us. But what, what's your reading yeah. of, of well, the American attention, the, the eye of the White House? Is it, has it been completely deflected onto the Middle East, onto the Israel Gaza situation, or is part of it still at least looking at the Amer- uh, Iranian nuclear program? Well, the White House's policy is to micromanage every issue. It has tried to micromanage uh, the border dispute or the maritime border dispute between Israel and Lebanon, which played in Hezbollah's favor. It tried to micromanage the Houthis by giving them, uh, you know, the freedom effectively to to act and to bring money and weapons in. Tried to micromanage Hamas by restoring American funding to Gaza. It's tried to micromanage Israel by sending Antony Blinken into Israeli war cabinet meetings, which is astounding when you think about it. Uh, meanwhile, the big picture uh, is is running out of their control. Um, I, I do ask people in Washington regularly because, obviously, if, if I was, you know, a member of leader of the um, IRGC, I would have spun those centrifuges on the morning of October the seventh, the moment it was clear that the regional crisis, which everyone has expected for years, was underway. Iran has said for more than four decades that it intends to defeat the United States, the Great Satan. And we are now seeing the attempt to expel U.S. influence from the region. Um, the problem is that we we have a micromanaging administration, one which is particularly concerned with uh, what the Obama team used to call optics, um, and, and domestic optics in particular, rather than the the real world um, of, of of national interests and hard decisions. The difficulty the Biden administration now faces is not just Iran. Iran, as we're seeing, is being backed by Russia and China in this crisis. It is also being backed by Turkey, opportunely. These are historic rivals, which are actually getting behind Iran in this. And we're also seeing a cascade effect of uh, international crises, the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, tensions over Taiwan, and now a war of all things on the cards in South America with Venezuela invading Guyana. Um, There's a limit in terms of sheer capacity what the team in the White House can control. In they fact, can't it... micromanage all these things, and they are actually linked. That's the problem. There is an absolute clear linkage. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it recalls Henry Kissinger, who died this week uh, or a few, few days ago, a uh, famous Jewish statesman, um, at around the time of the Yom Kippur War, which was 50 years almost to the day uh, before the October the 7th attacks, he was remarking about how much was on America's plate then? You had Vietnam, you had China, and then you had the war in the Middle East. You talked about being a student of history. You're a historian. Talks about the Iranians and others being students of history with regard to the Carter administration. How similar do you feel that era, that Kissinger moment was to today? Well, after he died, everybody came out with their Kissinger story, and I haven't, but but I, I'm willing to now. Um, <laughs> 
When I met him, I, I said, uh, funnily enough, a few days earlier, I'd uh, quoted from his first book, which was a study of the rebuilding of the European security system after 1815 and the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And um, he said, you know, and I won't do the accent. Uh, oh, he said, on, we need on. we need a Metternich now, uh, <laughs> by which he meant uh, uh, Klaus von Metternich was the architect of, of a piece which after an era of chronic instability, uh, stabilized the entire regional systems uh, by compromises, including, of course, a lack of democracy. Um, there is resemblance between that uh, and the Abraham Accords, for instance, where the stability of the region, it comes ahead, say, of democracy. You can mm -hmm. see elements of that also in the, in the fact that the uh, Sisi regime in Egypt has become an essential element of America and indeed regional strategy, despite the fact that after the overthrow of the Muslim Brotherhood government, um, despite the fact that the Obama administration put Egypt on the naughty step uh, for that. In other words, real politique always overcomes ideals, dreams, PR releases, and micromanagement. And uh, Kissinger, faults and all, had a very keen understanding of the uh, necessity to maintain order over anarchy, the most fundamental way, and therefore also to make very tough trade-offs, which include, for instance, tolerating wars in order to maintain a valuable client state. It is in an American interest that Israel emerges from this war, as I don't doubt that it will if it's allowed to fight it out, that it emerges from this war with Hamas, with its deterrence strengthened, and with Hamas's veto over political processes removed. There's another question whether Hamas can be made to disappear, but certainly weakened to the point that it cannot dictate or have a veto over the political process in the region. That would have been a Kissingerian goal, and it's the kind of thing that would be a stabilizing factor rather than a destabilizing one, and one that would also permit the creation of a, a regional system. Well, let me just query that that phrase you used, if Israel is allowed to fight it out. And this seems to be quite a key point to me. There's there's two developing schools of thought. One is that if the Americans pull the plug, the Israeli campaign is over uh, in, in terms of weapons, in terms of diplomatic support, in terms of perhaps even the two aircraft carriers, battle strike groups that are in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and the other school of thought is that even if that happens, and we had... Lincoln just the other day talking about Israeli credit being exhausted. Even if that credit was exhausted, Israel would still have no choice but to press on uh, and defend itself by itself, as the Israeli phrase has it. Do you, How much power do you think the Americans have over the Israeli freedom to act in their own interests in terms of prosecuting the war? The United States has um, enormous power over Israel's uh, capacity to fight the war in a way that the United States would like it to be fought, put it that way. The United States wants to hold together its diplomatic relationships uh, with the Arab states. It wants to uh, maintain its uh, purported leadership of, of the humanitarian ethos in the world. Um, and it wants uh, a happy uh, outcome in time for the November 2024 elections. None of these things have anything to do with the necessity, which seems to be quite obviously understood in Israeli society, as among Arabs, in fact, as well as Jews, that Israel fights a conclusive war uh, for its own survival. So there is a, a conflict of interests baked in, as there always is. And to go back to Kissinger in 1973, he stopped the Israelis from winning too well against Egypt and Syria in order to create um, what he would have called an exit ramp 
for the negotiations, which eventually did pay off and, and, and shifted the region in the US's favor by the end of the 1970s. So the idea that the great power uh, shouldn't seek to shape a war for its own ends is, is, is nuts. You know, that's also a fundamental of creating a stable regional system. So the question is, are the American priorities likely to stabilize the region or not? And uh, the particular question when you talk about uh, the aircraft carriers and so on, they are designed uh, effectively to keep Hezbollah out of the war. They are also there. Uh, and, and a senior Israeli politician described it to me as this. When uh, Biden and Kamala Harris said, don't, they issued a one word instruction to regional actors not to grow the war. That includes Israel. That was an instruction also to Israel. And the US is pressing Israel not to go against Hezbollah, who, as everybody knows, represent a far greater threat to Israel's survival than Hamas did and a far greater threat to regional stability. And, and as everybody also knows, and, and this um, ex-minister confirmed to me from his own sources, uh, Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, wanted to strike Hezbollah preemptively after October the 7th because they had Hamas boxed in. But Hezbollah is, of course, the greater threat. And he was overruled because the United States did not want that. And this does also fit the historic pattern where Israel must be seen to be aggressed against in order to have what, by, what Blinken calls the credit. And the question, of course, is, as with the credibility of the US dollar, how much is American credit worth in a world where the United States has become increasingly weak, where it is increasingly being pushed to the margins of the Eurasian landmass, where it is viewed as a temporary and external empire that will, like all the other empires, come and go, while the peoples who actually live there will be there the day after. And we've seen, in fact, I called uh, it future-proofing, uh, what Netanyahu has done. He's been very clever in some ways in building uh, diplomatic relations with other powers, with China, with India, with, in Africa, across the Middle East, and, of course, through the Abraham Accords as well. Um, what he hasn't done is established uh, an independent military production base. The Israel is dependent on the U.S. for the advanced munitions, the targeted munitions that it needs in order to avoid excessive civilian casualties. When people use words like indiscriminate bombing or carpet bombing, it is simply not true. The kind of munitions that are used are the ones that both the Israelis and the Americans want to use, which are targeted. There's a limited supply of those, and the U.S. has been simultaneously rushing large numbers of those uh, weapons to Israel, while effectively telling it not to use them too well, to not force a victory that might alter the regional frame. There is an incoherence here between what the Department of Defense will do, which is supply Israel, and what the State Department do, which is doing its best to tie Israel's hands. Congress, meanwhile, is massively in favor of Israel, and the American public is massively in favor of Israel in this conflict. The only people who are not are of course the loudest and most noticeable people. They are the left of the Democratic Party, the young people who are campaigning on the streets against the Jews, and most of the American media, which is, uh, if push comes to shove, will excuse Hamas and condemn Israel rather than address the profound failure of two Democratic presidents when it comes to foreign policy. Right, well, let's talk about the domestic scene in the States now, which we haven't turned to yet. Um, so there's an election coming up. We've got this war uh, that the Biden planning uh, in the run up to the 2024 election has been rather disrupted, shall we say, by Hamas. Um, 
what's the, what's the picture there do you think how, how have things changed and what what are the calculations that the biden team being forced to reappraise well the first change is this the american economy on paper is doing well inflation on paper is coming down yet most people aren't experiencing any great economic improvement and Biden is doing worse in the polls. Over the last 59 days, his numbers have decreased. Um, there are two reasons for that. One is that he uh, might have lost the left of his party and younger voters um, by not supporting Hamas. But the majority of, of Americans actually uh, are probably less charmed by the impression of weakness, that when the Middle East runs out of control, that is an indictment of the power which claims to run the region, the United States. And Americans are, generally speaking, very patriotic people and, and don't like it. And I've, I've lived here for 20 years, and, and those um, those are main, maintained they're consistent uh, principles. The American people are generally pro-Israel. They're not brutal. They, they are appalled, of course, by scenes of suffering and war. But generally, they understand where the American interest lies in the region. The exception. And it is becoming a, an even starker exception uh, is on the left of the party and among uh, the the young, the college educated young. Or not actually, we should be more precise: the privately college educated young, because it's not like people who are doing vocational studies at state colleges uh, are marching for globalizing the intifada and death to the Jews. This is an ideology which the higher you go in the American system, the more you encounter it. And as someone who, who studied at Harvard, lives down the road from it, has taught in the elite colleges, as they call them, of the Northeast, this is just the water in which you swim. It's one of the reasons why I stopped teaching in these places. Anti-Zionism, delegitimization of Israel, making excuses for terrorists and mass murderers is not just a, a glitch. It is the curriculum. And in the humanities in particular, and by the way, when we see these uh, petitions from professors, you just look at the departments they're in. They're all in the useless subjects, the made up subjects. They're all doing English literature or gender studies or any, or any of the field studies which have come in over the last 40 years. None of them are engineers. None of them are physicists. The exception, incidentally, is medicine. Uh, and there's a reason for that, which is that medicine is the fast track to success if you're uh, an immigrant from an educated immigrant background. And thus there's a very high presence of uh, Muslim immigrants and their children in uh, medicine schools, schools of medicine. And that is why the doctors are the exception. Otherwise, the idea that the university teaches uh, people to be uh, hu humane because it's the humanities or liberal and arty because it's liberal arts, this is a joke. It has become uh, a system for indoctrinating the activists who now form the, the, uh, the most committed element of the Democratic Party's base. And that, of course, is why no one is in a hurry to condemn them. So we've got the Democratic uh, base that requires... Uh, um... To some, to some extent, Biden from, from from not speaking clearly about condemnation of of Hamas, perhaps. Um, but in terms of the cold, hard electoral arithmetic as we approach twenty twenty four election, um, how much do you think it will really harm Biden's votes, harm his chances of re, of re election? Well, this this was uh, I was writing on this a few days ago, actually, for the Washington Examiner. Um, Biden is uh, one of the most experienced politicians in the West, and he's one of the most successful. And the reason is because he is a very skilled politician and therefore has no morals whatsoever. 
beyond the need to maintain and acquire power. And after a lifetime at it, he has finally reached the top job. To his credit, and I have been a consistent critic of him, I, I did say from the beginning that physically and mentally he just wasn't up to the job, um, and is, is, is probably rather corrupt and simply doesn't understand the 21st century world. To his credit, Biden maintains an intuitive understanding of the center of American public opinion. And that, I believe, is why he rushed to Israel straight away in a very clear demonstration of unequivocal support. That is also why I believe he has made several unequivocal statements of support. From what I can see, everyone around him uh, doesn't see it that way. Fortunately, he's the president, who is enormously powerful, is effectively, when it comes to foreign policy, an elected king. Um, the people around him, on the other hand, don't see it that way at all. I very much doubt that Biden sits up at night um, on Twitter, or X as it now is, firing off one-liners. But someone last week excerpted a one-liner from a speech in which Biden had said Israel has the unequivocal right to defend itself and Hamas must be defeated. They took out the one sentence which says, you know, war isn't the way to go. It gives Hamas what they want. And that sentence was probably put in in order to pacify his State Department and his advisors. I mean, the State Department has had hundreds of people walking out and writing letters of process, which is unprecedented, in fact, in American politics. Um, Biden gets it. He knows the American public. The people around him tend to be Ivy League educated wonks who are a kind of um, professionalized aristocracy. One of the things which has happened in the United States over the previous decades is the slowing of social acceleration and the pulling away of the top 20% of the country economically, just in terms of attitudes even. And the people around him, unlike, say, Kissinger's generation or someone like Kennedy or the first Bush, they don't have experience of the outside world. They don't have experience of the most awful thing of all, which is war such as, as Kissinger, for instance, and Kennedy had. Um, they are purely theoretical people, and they view their fellow Americans with a mixture of contempt and perplexity. They are, to use uh, David Goodhart's um, terminology, they are really are citizens of nowhere and, and everywhere. They're not specific. Um, so they don't get it. And they are, because they're younger and much more digital, they think that the reality is the one that they're seeing on their phones when everyone's going Israeli genocide and so on. But of course it isn't. The American public, if anything, is more behind Israel now than it was on October the 6th. So Biden gets that. So he knows that if he uh, backs Israel, takes a strong line, he increases his chances of, of recovering his rather dire position in the polls. But he also knows that if he backs Israel and Israel wins too well or if this war follows the logic that in a way his own administration helped to create and spins out into a regional war, he also knows that's electoral disaster. So Biden really is, is now caught between these two things. And a foreign policy that comes down to effectively begging Iran, let us off the hook so we can win again in November. I, I just can't see that one working out. So I, I, I'm afraid that I do believe that sooner or later, there will be a situation where the Biden administration will either demand that Israel stops fighting, even if it leaves Hamas in power, or things will spin beyond the Biden administration's influence. Because there has, since 1980, no American administration has been so weak in the Middle East. And let's face it, a policy of getting out of the Middle East, which is the consistent thread 
from the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration, regardless of the domestic polarities, mm-hmm. that policy involves. I mean, you can't not have a, a reduction of American influence. And as and as I was saying, it was a big mistake to think you can reduce your influence. In other words, keep the lid on the pot where it's really bubbling while taking your hand off it, which is in effect what the United States has tried. The thing is boiling over and everyone's burnt. So I, I don't foresee uh, a smooth ride at all for Biden uh, in this and the Democrats. And I do. Uh, and, it, you know, it gives me no pleasure to say that three years ago I, I was describing just this in in the columns for the jc that um there will be a, a diplomatic crisis between the us and israel because they're so divergent here the us effectively wants a quiet life and the democrats see that even meaning empowering iran and the israelis are in a fight for their survival and and for that matter the saudis and and the gulf states as well know perfectly well that their survival is at stake in a region dominated by a nuclear iran that's not a safe future for them either that's right. Although, and perhaps we'll we'll just end on, on this last uh, area. Uh, we may very well in 2024 see an America returned to the iron grip of Donald Trump, uh, and that will be a very different America from what we've seen over the past four years or so. Uh, and it will be a different place with respect to Israel as well. Um, if there is a Trump victory, I mean, for for one thing, what chances do you give Donald Trump of winning? And secondly. If he does win, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, having said I told you so, I should admit to also having been wrong. About a year ago, I was saying there's no way that Trump is back. He's done and DeSantis is so obviously more competent and actually has a record of actual governing when passing laws and things like that. Uh, and I was completely wrong, as everybody was, um, in misreading uh, the, the enthusiasm of the Republican base in fact about a third of it is is trump till it dies it's MAGA forever and they're going to make him the candidate and the effort to um prevent him from running effectively by locking him up uh is it doesn't seem to be working either and that will actually feed into into his uh, campaign also if it's possible to accept uh, to to assess the trump phenomenon rationally he has been vindicated when it comes to the Middle East and when it comes to foreign policy. In fact, that was basically the only area of real coherent success was the Abraham Accords and this breakthrough, really, diplomatically. And and um, so we would expect, if he was to win again, uh, and it does, as, as of today, look like he would, uh, we would expect uh, a great throwing up of hands and de- declaring that the end of the world was nigh, but we would also expect um, in pushing extremely aggressively for that uh, Metternich-style regional rebalancing, which would mean blocking out Iran, building up Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, an alliance of moderate pro-American states against a major anti-American nuclear-powered enemy, in effect. And this would be treated as warmongering and chaos. But the last time round, it actually uh, seemed to have worked quite well. And... Um, the fact, again, is this, that Donald Trump instigated no foreign wars and was enormously popular because of that. And if it's Trump-Biden in November 24, which is still an if, he will probably be able to say, I didn't start any wars, but look what these clowns have done. Because running against Washington, even when you've been Washington for four years, is still the way to win the election. And Washington has yet again embarrassed itself 
uh, in the Middle East during the Biden administration. So I'm afraid to say for good or bad that Trump's uh, chances are getting better and better. And the kind of dynamic that I'm describing where this rolling chaos that the US cannot seriously control in the Middle East feeds back into domestic politics. Americans don't like scenes of rioting students, people trying to smash up Jewish institutions, Jews being assaulted in the streets. That is downright un-American. So all of this um, backs Trump, let alone when you consider this, the crime statistics, the southern border. And for Jews, a, a an organized campaign of intimidation and violence is obviously a serious day-to-day -day matter of physical safety. For most Americans, this is a matter of national dignity. This is not meant to be a country where anyone can walk in, where criminal gangs are shipping people and drugs across the border where the Justice Department is being used as a weapon, where Jews are attacked in the streets like it's Europe 100 years ago. These are all considered deeply un-American things. And uh, as they say, you broke it, you own it. This is the face now of the Biden administration. So I would be, if, if it's Biden-Trump in 24, I would expect now Trump to win. And I would also expect the Middle East to be a less dangerous place fairly soon after. Goodness, well, November 2024 does seem like a very long way away, indeed, particularly from the perspective of Israel. Uh, but yes. Dominic uh, Green, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, just a reminder to viewers on YouTube that you can also listen to this as a podcast. And for listeners of the podcast, you can also view this on YouTube. Uh, Dominic, yeah. thanks once again. And, uh, and we'll speak to you again soon, I'm sure. <laughs>